Canadian. That's interesting. You called it Canadian. This is a Canadian published book. It's is because it? it's uh, what the U.S. is going to use in Germany and France and the U.K. Same thing happened last time with Three Day Road, and uh, I remember a reviewer, the Star, really picking up on that and just saying, "Why do they need to say this?" And I just yeah. found the semantics ridiculous. It's like, yeah, I live in New Orleans, but I'm Canadian. So. But I like to. I don't mind that because I like to remind Canadians that because yeah. just because I live in New Orleans, went to the air, I'm not an expatriate. I'm a Canadian who lives in a different country. For yeah. The year, yeah. Yeah. And also, I mean, telling the Germans that you're not an American. <coughs> exactly. Yeah. So Canadian Joseph Boyden's first novel, Three Day Road, was selected for the Today Show book club. That's like NBC or ABC Ooh, or yeah, one of those. Big US yeah. So. Okay. Won the Rogers Writers Trust Fiction Prize and the CBA Fiction Book of the Year, the Amazon.ca Books in Canada First Novel Award, and the McNally Robinson Aboriginal Book of the Year Award. He divides his time between Northern Ontario and Louisiana, and uh, has recently written and uh, now is promoting. Uh, is this the second in a trilogy? Yeah. It's Through Black Spruce. Through Black Spruce. It's not easy to say. No, I know. It's a bit of a tongue twister. Yeah. Welcome to the Bibliophile. Yeah, thanks. Good to, good to be here. A lot of the coverage of this particular book and your previous book quotes you as saying, because you now live in New Orleans, okay. quotes you as saying that the psychic and geographic difference between the northern Ontario and New Orleans and Louisiana gives, quote, me something as a writer. It's a distance that is important for you. Yeah. I wonder if you could get into that. I think there's a few facets too. Number one, my wife's American, Amanda. We've actually lived in Toronto. We lived in an Ontario for a while in the 90s. We both loved it, but we both immediately went off in different directions than what we were pursuing. And so as a way to kind of come back together tighter, we said, well, let's go back to the place where we went to graduate school in New Orleans because I'd been offered a teaching job down there. We had very fond memories of that city and uh, kind of missed it. And so we went back down. What I found is I was really craving my family and, and different aspects of Canada that you just don't get in the South or really anywhere in the States. You know, they're true bush. And, uh, you know, there's many beautiful places naturally in the States, but I don't think they're even comparable to what Canada has. You can't just go and disappear into the bush and not see anyone for months if you don't want to. And that's kind of the thing that I'm really excited about. Not that I do it, but I certainly will go in for a couple of weeks. But the idea that you can disappear escape to somewhere that no other humans are around has always fascinated me. But <clears throat> this whole idea of the psychic distance that I kind of crave for my writing, I'm from a very big family, and as much as I love them, if you live around family, it can become very distracting. So what I do is I come up a number of times to Ontario a year and visit with family and, and fill up on stories and go up to James Bay and fill up on... Because you used to teach up there. Yeah, I used to teach up yeah. there, and I've got still got very close friends up there. And I fill up on, you know, the advent little adventures I do, whether it's snowmobiling or fishing or hunting. Once I've filled up on that, I just go home and kind of let it all percolate and begin writing about it. I've, I've tried to write in Ontario, and I have written parts of both books in Ontario, but I find that it's... Being given that distance unlocks something for me, allows me a freedom that I don't find I can find in Ontario, strangely. It's true, the Canadians still, you know, known as backpackers who are known as the partiers around yeah, the world, and, yeah. yet, and yet there's also this perception of us as being an adult, yeah. and yet being able to see 
what you've got from another place. It, it gives you a greater sense of appreciation, I suppose, of what you've got. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It really does, especially living in a city like New Orleans, which is so different from Canada and Northern Ontario and so many areas, but also similar in some really weird ways. Yeah, and I understand you you uh, you plan and want to to write about those similarities, the sort of love of life and. Yeah, I already did something. Uh, I did a lecture, the first Chrysler lecture at the University of Edmonton in Alberta. They asked me to be the first speaker, and so I wrote a. a a lecture or a talk called From Meshkegwak to New Orleans, A Mixed Blood Highway, and I did a lot of comparisons of the two places, and you know, the, uh, the differences are obvious, I made some similarities, and uh, they went over well. They published in a little book, New West Press, so it was good. Talking about being isolated and alone with nature, can you articulate the, that feeling? Well, you know, it's very easy to romanticize it, but it tests you to your as far as it can. You know, black fly season in June and July is just can be horrendous and can drive you crazy. And the winters can clearly kill you very quickly up on James Bay. I do tend to romanticize a little when I'm away from it, but then when I go back into it, it's it's all right there in my face. But there's a always the idea of being the only human within a hundred miles or two hundred miles or three hundred miles, depending where I am, or with my brothers, or you know, we're the only humans around is kind of an exciting thing for me still. I know it's kind of old-fashioned, but uh, there's something that's really invigorating in knowing that you have to be careful in everything you do, and, and you have to plan carefully, or you're going to get in real trouble, and it's very it's exciting. Edge, yeah, it's, it's, uh, you know, some people are adrenaline junkies, and they jump off buildings and, and do all those crazy things. My get more of a slow burn adrenaline, I guess, where I love the idea of taking a snowmobile, with, like for example with my brother we took snowmobiles and drove 600 miles straight north from just south of Moose and he ended up at the Polar Bear Park, you know, in January wow. winter camping, and that's it's that kind of adventure that just I love, you know, I'm always fascinated by the guys who are marching off to the north or south pole and Yeah, I'm reminded of Branson. Yeah. Achieved heights in all sorts of different yeah. areas, doesn't he? Yeah. yeah, but there's something really kind of enthralling about being out in true wilderness you know, even Galgonquin Park, you can, that's true wilderness to me, but when you go to James Bay, it's like, it's real, it's tough, it's a tough It's landscape. not pleasant. No, I mean, it, it, it can pleasant. be, it can be really yeah. pleasant, but it can also, it's not, it, you know, it's, you have to plan well, you have to be careful, you know, I've canoed with my brother and my son, and through parts of that area way up in James Bay, and it's amazing, but you just always have to be careful. I'm speaking with Joseph Boyden, whose latest novel is through black spruce getting a bit literary here relating your time in isolation in the wilderness brings up the word survival and Margaret Atwood how do you position what you're doing in the context of Canadian literature huh well I think I'm like roughing it in the bush yeah I think I'm exploring a people in a place that is so rarely rarely exploring Canada despite the richness and the beauty of the people and the harshness of the people in the landscape and it's got all of the great kind of elements a writer would want and so when I stumbled upon you know these stories and these people when I went up to live up in James Bay and was teaching on isolated reserves and, and living in Moosonee you know I was just like wow this is really what I'm supposed to be writing about this is great so it's sort of like a aha I mean a yeah certainly it was a slow aha because I wasn't able to write when I was living there 
and more than just little snippets. It's that same kind of thing I was talking about with psychic distance, where there wasn't the psychic distance. I was surrounded and swallowed up by what can be a tough life up there. Worked with uh, a lot of kids who got in a lot of trouble and adults who were in a lot of trouble, but you know, mostly with drugs. Not even drugs. Alcoholism is more, and uh, and abusive families and uh, self abuse. Which um, is the stereotypical view absolutely. of white yeah. Canadians. But then there's the other whole side of you know the Native experience. They're getting the love of the land, the air, the bush, the beauty of the country, the beautiful. Like there's a lot of people back into their spirituality, or you know, even if they're into their Christianity, which is the newer religion. There's a real, you know, there's another side to the First Nations that we don't get to see too often. And I try to explore that a little bit in through Black Spruce. I don't mm-hmm. think I do. What about the actual myths? of the uh, Aboriginal people. Have you sort of poured through any of that? Yeah, there's not much written about the Mushkegawa Cree and their their myths and their mythology and their legends. Uh, there's a guy named... I'm totally blanking. That's yeah, no problem. But uh, he's written a couple... He's a Cree from up there. Mm-hmm. And I've read a couple of his books, which are really fascinating. And he just speaks in a very Cree way. But yeah, most of the stories and the legends and the myths, you know, the Wendigo and, the, and a lot of the... I'm going to separate the religion from the myths, but a lot of the religion I've learned and practiced is handed down orally still, which is pretty great. So do you go up there with a tape recorder? I have in the past, for sure. I was trying very specifically to get certain things when I was doing that, but I just go up and kind of keep that file folder in my head yeah. open and, and, and log things. And Very few people at first, I thought, knew any of the myths or legends or practiced the the traditional religion for the first long time that I lived there, and then I realized a lot more people do than I thought. They just weren't willing to necessarily share it. It's kind of a private, personal yeah, thing. Yeah, it's a pretty private thing, and so I only give away a little of, of the stories, you know, and I don't want to ever take anything from the Cree that anyone I've asked, elders or any other friends, that, that I'd be allowed to share. There's only one person, actually, who I didn't know who became upset with me because I talked about the shape tent and the and the sweat lodge and the divining of bones and the windigo. You feel you know, it, obviously a, a need to be respectful oh, you have of the to. tradition. It's, yeah, you have to. Not to pillage it for yeah, your own no. you financial to. gain or yeah, whatever. Yeah, and I've never been accused of that, thank God, because that's certainly never been my intent, and I don't think I'd do that. You know, I think it would become very obvious to an audience if that's what I was doing. Well, it seems to me that, uh, you know, again, this would be a way for your serving as a sort of a link between the two cultures and to bring some important tradition and knowledge to Canadians yeah. who may not, in a way that involves the reader emotionally. It's very funny you said that a very long and heartfelt conversation with a very close relative of mine just before Three Day Road was come out because I was actually wrestling with that. I was like... You know, am I doing the right thing? Am I I'm not taking advantage, right? I don't feel like I am. And he said to me, my relation said to me, no, think of yourself as a bridge between these two places. There's a huge gulf between the Cree of Ontario and the rest of Ontario and in the bigger picture, First Nations people often and, and, and the bigger culture. And so be that bridge and be proud of that. And, and that's how both First Nations and white people have responded. You know, the rest of the culture have responded so far to my writing, which makes me very happy. Mm-hmm. Well, it seems to me that that would be, a, if, you, if you hold that as a, an ambition to be a bridge, what a powerful motivation. Yeah, exactly. And, that, you know, it's, it's a very, it's 
I don't want to call it lofty because I don't. I never hold myself up too high because I know I'll just knock myself down. But I certainly aim to open up communication at the very least. I hope you know between between different different places and different people. Yeah, and do and do right by. I hope so. Yeah, yeah. it's always always my aim. This may be a, a bit crude, but I just wonder. It seems to me that what you're doing is what what government should be doing. Has government bought into what you're doing? Like, are, they, are you able to get funding to do this sort of thing or not? I've never looked. I mean, the last time I had funding was the Can Arts Council, and that was a huge boost for me when I was writing Three Day Road and really kind of struggling to make ends meet and mm-hmm. not knowing if the book was going to get published. And teaching five or six classes a semester, I applied for a grant and got one, and that was the thing that gave me the confidence to continue. Somebody actually you know, said, you know, this project's worthy, keep going. Mm-hmm. But I haven't ever approached the government with funding for anything like that. I mean, that certainly isn't something that's foremost in an artist's mind. Yeah, yeah. But on the other hand, see, this just sort of, as I thought about it, this is exactly what a government needs to be doing. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah, it's a tough call, you know. I think the federal government's trying in different ways to figure out how to begin healing, and that's not a white word in terms of, I think they're using it more as the the First Nations word, you know, the idea of the scars that are left behind. You know, residential school, no matter how, you know, this went woman who just wrote in the Globe and Mail, this drives me crazy. I don't know if you saw the article or not. She responded to what Dick Pound had to say, that Canada was a land of savages 400 years ago, and she goes, what a dumb thing to say, but he's right, kind of thing. And uh, and then she goes on to list a, basically a racist woman out west who's written a book of trying to dispel the myth of... uh, that First Nations people were anything but Neolithic and uh, savages, and it's she's going to feel a lot of backlash from First Nations people for that. It's, you know, this comparing of cultures and the automatic assumption that one is better than the other. But that kind of whole thing is just starting to drive me crazy. This kind of politicizing. Well, it's about the money, isn't it? It's so funny. She did this. She published this. This I don't even want to call it op-ed piece. It's a piece of garbage. Margaret went from the Globe Yeah, Yeah. She published a piece of garbage and used uh, a woman who teaches out West who's, I cannot remember her name, who wrote a book trying to dispel what she says is the myth of uh, the First Nations people in North America. In other words, that Europeans were perfectly uh, within their rights to come in and slaughter and... and Yeah, well, it's all kinds of problems with, with, with the arguments that they're setting up, but that's a whole other story. Yeah, yes. Yeah. But, but I mean, it's, it's obviously on really your mind. upsetting, though. It's it's on my mind because then today, the Monday, I, you know, after this weekend or whenever this came out a few days ago, I read it last night. Today, front page of the Globe and Mail, it's like uh, Truth and Reco- Reconciliation Commission is is, is set up a, a group to try to find all of the children who died of natural or unnatural causes uh, in residential school and were never properly buried and were basically hidden and there's no no way of knowing what those numbers are and so if you want to talk about savagery you know there's savagery what happened Mm -hmm. often in residential schools there's true brutality and savagery I I hope these recent writers who are trying to stir the pot and I think at a very bad time Mm -hmm. um, learn to regret their words because I think they're very very wrong in what they set out to say this is obviously something you're uh, passionate about. Is this, yeah, it uh, pains me. I was sitting with some native friends last night in Ottawa. You can just see the shock on their face. They're like, I can't believe that. You know, it's it's, it's painful to watch these First Nations people. 
mm-hmm. really kind of struggling with uh, stupidity. Like, not their own stupidity, the stupidity of somebody supposedly to be looked up to, mm-hmm. you know? And so It's just going to make its way into your third uh, book? Um, you know, I don't know. It would be interesting. I certainly, well, yeah, well, there's another, I'm writing another book beyond the third in the trilogy, and it's certainly going to play a big part in that, and this is, I knew that long before this whole kind of recent debate reared its head. Fiction or non Fiction, and I'm not really talking too much about it, all yeah. other than it's historical, and it's going to be pretty big, like big in terms of a meaty book, I yeah. hope is the plan. But yeah, this, this has been in the making for a couple of years, and I'm just beginning to do the lay of the groundwork for it. So yeah, that will come in, and certainly in a pretty direct way. It's funny, you know, I've been trying to think of other native voices, literary voices. All I can think of is Thompson Highway. In terms of literary voices? Yeah. Oh, there's Tom King, Richard Van Camp, Drew Hayden Taylor. Uh, yeah, there's it a great... My, it shows my ignorance. No, it's, it's... I think Aboriginal literature has always kind of been separated from the mainstream. But what I'm finding more and more is that these... It's starting to enter it. And I see good things, you know. I see it. There's a lot of amazing poets, too. Gregory Schofield and... Louise Half and Marilyn Dumont and you know the list goes on and on and children's writers Nicola Campbell well there's Maria Campbell her auntie I think it is who wrote Half Breed but yeah there's a I think there's a real kind of rebirth or not even a rebirth but a kind of a springing up of a lot of young First Nations talent uh, in both fiction fiction, poetry and non-fiction that's kind of exciting so well, yeah, it makes a great deal of sense, too, given how crucial storytelling is to the... the uh no, totally. But yeah. it's always, you know, again, it was often an oral tradition. Yes. Yeah. Um, but uh, that's changing, you know. Perhaps what we could do is, is just touch on, if you wish to, the the storyline. You've got two narrators in uh, through Black Spruce. If you'd care to whet the appetite of our listeners with few details on the book. That sure, sure. Um, the novel opens with uh, Wilbird. He's the uncle of the other narrator in the novel. Uh, in the hospital in this factory, he's, he's in a coma, and he's not quite sure how he's ended up there. So he's kind of whispering out to his family from this path he's walking on between life and death, and uh, he's trying to whisper out to them to try to almost do a sounding to try to figure out where he is and, and, and how you know, where he's going. And so he he's talking throughout the novel. And then the other the other narrator is Annie Bird, his niece, who returns to Moose Factory after a fruitless year of searching for her sister, who's missing. Her sister Suzanne had become a famous model and traveled, you know, extensively, but then just suddenly disappeared. And so Annie's returned from a year of looking for her and not being able to find her. Left Moose and Moose Factory for the first time and gone to places like Toronto, Montreal, and New York City looking for her sister and slowly kind of gets absorbed into her sister's wild world of friends and fashion modeling and parties and, and decadence and uh, so she's returned home to find Will in a coma and her best friend Eva who's a nurse at the hospital says well talk to him and, you know, and people in coma can often hear your voice it might trigger something that'll wake him or at least help pull him out you might be a bit of uh, the English patient oh yeah? Yeah. yeah I never thought of that and so Annie begins talking to Will almost confessing to him, very grudgingly at first, she doesn't want to do it, but then the floodgates kind of open up and she begins expressing herself to him and what happened to her and the trials and tribulations and the joys she's had on this on this journey for the last while. And so the novel bounces back and forth between t- these two voices calling out to each other. 
It's been uh, uh, called a, a comedy. Yeah, I hope so. Because, you know, when you're dealing with First Nations people, humor is, is the cornerstone of so much. Very dry. Yeah, and yeah. I've been with people who are in really bad places, but they'll still laugh and they'll still smile. And so I wanted to get the humor across a little bit in this novel. You know, Three Day Road, there, wherever there was room for humor, I'd try to slip it in, but there's not a lot of room for humor in a First World War novel, I don't think. But with this new one, there was more room for it. And so Will is actually a pretty funny guy. And I wanted that to come across. You know, I was hoping that would come across. That, yeah, there's you know, there's always a humor. You know, there's always a tragedy in the humor. And so I was really appreciative of the, this one critic anyways who really caught that, the kind of the comedy and the humor in it. So yeah, even at the most dire of times, there was that comedy. Which makes it that much uh, more poignant. I hope. And, and mistaken identities, too. Oh, absolutely. I think that's one of the themes that has kind of organically emerged from my writing, is this idea of identity and mistaken identity. Same thing in Three Day Road, same as in this one. And, uh, and the idea of trying to find yourself and who you are. And, yeah, that's really become a big part of my writing. And kind of naturally, it wasn't that I never tried to force it. You'll know if I try to force it, because it probably won't work too well. <laughs> well, in fact, that was one of the criticisms that, uh, that I'd read, was that when you try to... When you get on a soapbox about native decadence, I think that's those. You know, we were talking earlier about arguing against or in favor of a way of looking at history, how that could be detrimental. To yeah. How, how do you how do you take that criticism? That I got on a soapbox in the novel. Yeah. Huh. I only I only did it once consciously, and it's only a few lines, and it's talking about Annie is early in the novel is talking about the Northern Store and watching these old grandparents pushing around their carts and that 40, 50 years ago they were living in the bush and eating healthfully and uh, now the community's diabetes ridden and and, uh, and, uh, and she looks around at the food and the expense of the vegetables and stuff and kind of says no wonder. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I did once in a while and I knew it, you know, I was even warned by my coffee editor, oh. you know, maybe you shouldn't put this in it, it sounds like you're proselytizing. Yeah. Oh, you know what, that one little shot of you, but mm-hmm. I don't really think that I do get on a soapbox anywhere else. Joseph Boyden's first novel, Three Day Road, was selected for the Today Show Book Club, won the Rogers Writers Trust Fiction Prize and the CBA Fiction Book of the Year, the Amazon.ca Books in Canada First Novel Award and the McNally Robinson Aboriginal Book of the Year Award. He divides his time between Northern Ontario and Louisiana and has recently written and, and now is promoting through Black Spruce, 